بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, we have reached lesson 100. Alhamdulillah. So this is 100 lessons in covering the seerah of Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. And today, inshallah, we're going to conclude our discussion that we've had over the past few weeks concerning Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, the Treaty of al-Hudaybiyah. And... Last week we were discuss- discussing the negotiations of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu and the rumor that spread among the Muslims that Sayyidina Uthman had been killed. And we mentioned that this rumor is what gave rise to what we know as Bay'atul Ridwan, the Pledge of Allegiance known as Ar-Ridwan. Now why was it called the Bay'ah? of Ridwan, of divine satisfaction. It's because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed an ayah in Surah Al-Fatih where Allah ta'ala mentions his rida, his pleasure, with those who gave the bay'ah tahta shajara underneath the tree, beneath the tree there at Al-Hudaybiyah. So as we said last week, that bay'ah was given with, uh, as, as a pledge of loyalty and allegiance that they were going to avenge the death of Uthman radiallahu anhu. But when word got back to the people of Mecca that they did this bay'ah, they decided that they should send Uthman back and they should in fact negotiate a proper peace treaty. And that is why it is called Sulh al-Hudaybiyah because Sulh means an armistice or a peace treaty. And this was led by one negotiator after several were attempting and this negotiator that Quraysh had sent was Suhail ibn Amr and we mentioned last week that when Suhail ibn Amr was sent by Quraysh to negotiate the terms of the peace treaty as he made his way to Al-Hudaybiyah and was seen by the Prophet sallallahu the Prophet sallallahu took a positive Omen, what we call a fa'al. A fa'al in Arabic means a positive omen, not a superstitious bad omen. You know, we have those in different cultures. In different cultures, people look at things as signs of bad luck. We don't believe in that. Black cats crossing your path, breaking a mirror, seven years, bad luck, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we don't believe in bad omens, but we do believe in good omens, not superstitious things, but positive signs through certain interesting connections, if you will. And the reason why the Prophet ﷺ took this as a positive omen is because Suhail, his name means the little easy one from Sahel. So it says Tasghir of Sahel. Sahel, put on that form, is Suhail. Like a small pen, a qalam would be a Qulaym, right? So Fu'ail, that sound means something small. So Suhail means the little small one 
or the little easy one rather. So the Prophet ﷺ on seeing Suhail ibn Amr make his way to negotiate, he said to the ummah there present, your matter has been made easy for you. And in one narration he said, they wish for a truce if they have sent this man. They truly want a peace treaty. So what's really interesting here is that when you look at the events that unfolded, you have to ask yourself, was Uthman successful in his negotiation? He went there at the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ to negotiate. But was he successful? It appears that he couldn't convince them to allow the, the Umrah any more than the other negotiators could convince them. Because when he went there, they said to him exactly what they said to the previous ones, which is, you're not going to make the Umrah this year. We're not going to allow it. But because he went there and his stay was prolonged, that caused the rumors to spread among the Muslims that he had been killed. That led to the Bay'ah, and the Bay'ah led to the Quraysh sending Suhail to ask for a peace treaty. So in that sense, he was successful, not in getting the Umrah, but at least doing certain things that set into motion this, these chains of events leading to the peace treaty. So Suhail ibn Amr is the negotiator now. And we spoke about his story last week, and we mentioned the prior history the Muslims had with him at the time of Badr. He was captured, was taken to Medina, and we told that story about when the wife of the Prophet Sauda saw him and said what she said. Now, one thing we have to mention here about Suhail ibn Amr is that Suhail ibn Amr had two sons. This is very important. He had one son named Abdullah and another son named Abu Jandal. These are two important names. So his eldest son, Abdullah ibn Suhail, was actually something of a secret convert, a secret Muslim in Mecca. It wasn't entirely a secret, but he was more or less secret in that it wasn't publicly known. So when Badr takes place, Abdullah ibn Suhail used that opportunity to make hijrah, to attempt to make a hijrah, by joining the army of Quraysh heading to Badr. Because he basically wants to go with them, giving them the impression that he's going along with them to fight at Badr. But that was a pretext to get out of Mecca and to get there and to beat a hasty retreat to escape. So he volunteers to go with the Mushrik army of Quraysh to Badr and he travels with them. But when he gets with Quraysh to where they set up the camp for Badr, he manages to sneak away. He gets on his horse, he sneaks away, and he joins the Muslims to fight at Badr on the Muslim side. So his, this is Abdullah ibn Suhail. The other brother, Abu Jandal, we have a story about him coming next week, inshallah. But for now, his other brother, his younger brother, Abu Jandal, is also something of a secret convert to Islam living in Mecca, but he's younger. He too wanted to make the hijrah to Medina, but he was unable to do so. Why? Because his father, Suhail ibn Amr, the negotiator here in the story, 
realized that he was a Muslim as well. So Suhail ibn Amr told his servants to take Abu Jandal, chain him up, and to beat him up a little bit and deprive him of food and water. So basically, Abu Jandal was kept in shackles and chains confined to his house, unable to leave Mecca and make hijrah to Medina. So this was right after Badr, right? So what does this mean? It means that from Badr up until this negotiation, which is about four and a half years, Abu Jandal, this secret Muslim, the son of Suhail ibn Amr, the negotiator, is basically imprisoned in his home and he can't get out. He can't escape Mecca to make hijrah to Medina. So four and a half years, he's in that condition. And his story we'll be talking about next week. But we have to mention these two individuals now. So it's at this stage in the seerah that we get to the actual treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. Everything we've been saying for the past two or three weeks has been all of the details leading up to the actual treaty. The dream of the Prophet gathering the Muslims, making their way to Al-Hudaybiyah, the attempted attack, the attempted negotiations. Now we're at the actual negotiation of what we call Sulh al-Hudaybiyah. So when Suhail ibn Amr reaches the Prophet the two of them finally sit together and negotiate the terms of the treaty. And they talk at length, going back and forth about the terms of the treaty. And the Prophet asked him, you will leave us to perform the tawaf around the Kaaba. This is one of the terms. He wants the Muslims to make their umrah. But Suhail says to him, as every other negotiator said to him, they say the exact same thing. He says, no, by Allah, the Arabs will not say that we were pressured and compelled to allow that, but we'll allow you to do it next year. You see, they don't want them to, the Muslims to make their umrah. Why? Because if they allow them now in these circumstances, they are afraid that as word spreads to the surrounding tribes in Arabia, they're just going to gossip about Quraysh and say, oh, they were weak and they had to let them and this is a sign of weakness. They didn't want to harm their reputation. So they said, no, we're not going to allow you to do it this year, but we'll allow you to do it next year. So the Prophet ﷺ, after all of the attempts, he agreed to the sulh on this term, that they're not going to make their umrah this year. And this is where we get to the famous story recorded by Bukhari and Muslim and several others about the writing of this sulh, this truce. And inshallah, we're going to go through that narration and then look at the broader lessons we can derive from it. So at this point, as they're about to write down the terms of the treaty, the Prophet wasallam calls for Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu to act as the katib, the scribe. And the Prophet wasallam begins dictating to Imam Ali what he is to write in this treaty. He first says to Imam Ali, write Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. This is normal because in other hadith we know that every matter of importance should begin with the basmala. He tells him to write the basmala. So as he's about to write the basmala, 
we get an objection from Suhail ibn Amr. They haven't even written the terms yet, and already there's an objection. Suhail ibn Amr says to him, As for Ar-Rahman, Wallahi, I don't know what that is. Rather, you should write, Bismik Allahumma, as we are accustomed to, which means, in your name, O Allah. So the Arabs were accustomed to beginning things of importance with Bismik Allahumma. So they had a kind of tasmiya, but they were not accustomed to what we call the Basmala, which is the full formula of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Why does he say this? He says, as for ar-Rahman, by Allah, we don't know what that is. Now notice he's not saying, we don't know who that is. He's saying, we don't know what that is. This is important because when we talk about the divine names, and we have, the, we have a program starting soon, inshallah, we'll recover the divine names. We learn in that, that there is a difference of opinion among the ulama, the scholars, about whether the name Ar-Rahman is derived, a mushtaq, or if it is a solid noun that's not derived, a non-derived noun. And there's a lot of detail about what that even means, but one of the proofs for those who say that it's not mushtaq is the fact that the Arabs of Jahiliyyah did not recognize it. If it was derived, then they would have readily recognized it. This is one argument that they say. And they add that he says, we don't know what Ar-Rahman is. It doesn't say who. So it's as if the name was not recognized among them. Which is very interesting. And Allah mentions that in the Qur'an. And they ask, وَمَا rahman They don't say, وَمَن. They say, what is Ar-Rahman? You know, the all-merciful, the universally merciful and compassionate. So... When he said this, the Prophet ﷺ instructs them to write this. And the Muslims, they didn't really like this. Already, from the very beginning, we see objections just to the writing of the Basmala versus the other formula. But we see in another narration that the Prophet ﷺ was willing to make some concessions for the greater interest of what he was after in this peace treaty. In one narration, the Prophet ﷺ said to the Muslims, By Allah, no condition will Quraysh ask of me which respects the sha'air of Allah, the signs of Allah, except that I will give them that condition. And so he agrees. And he has Ali write, Bismik Allahumma. There's nothing objectionable with writing Bismik Allahumma. It's a beautiful statement, even if the initial statement that was dictated was Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So that's the first line. The second line of the treaty was when the Prophet ﷺ instructed Imam Ali to write, this is what Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, has agreed to with Suhail ibn Amr. So he has Imam Ali write this with the title Muhammad Rasulullah, Muhammad the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And here in the second line, we have another objection from Suhail ibn Amr. He interrupts and he says, "By Allah, if we knew that you were indeed the Messenger of Allah, 
we would not have prevented you from the Kaaba, nor would we have fought you. And in one riwayah, he adds a third statement, nor would we have, uh, we wouldn't have fought you, and we would have followed you as well. So, he's being honest. They didn't believe in him as Rasulullah sallallahu So he objects to him writing that in the treaty. He's not acceding to that title. And so the Prophet sallallahu receives this objection from Suhail. And Suhail says, instead, write that this is what Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, has agreed to with Suhail ibn Amr. So just writing his name and his father's name, the typical, you know, Fulan ibn Fulan, so and so, the son of so and so. So the Prophet says to Suhail ibn Amr, Wallahi, I am indeed the messenger of Allah, even if you repudiate me, even if you object, this is the haqq, I am the messenger of Allah, he says. But he agrees to this term as well. And he tells Imam Ali, Umhu Rasulullah. Erase the statement, Rasulullah, Messenger of Allah. So Imam Ali, radiallahu anhu, wa karramallahu wajha, he says, Wallahi, lam, la amhuka abadan. I will never erase you. And in one narration, la amhu Rasulullah. I will never erase Messenger of Allah. He basically says, I'm not going to do it. I am not going to erase that statement. And then the Prophet ﷺ says to Imam Ali, show it to me, show me the document. Now Rasulullah ﷺ is Ummi, and Ummi, there's a large, long discussion about what that word means, and to what extent, and when, and to what degree he had literacy. We, we did a whole thing on that a couple of years ago, it's about an hour we did on the issue of Ummi. Uh, but he recognizes obviously his own name, even if we don't ascribe literacy to him in, in you know, an absolute sense. He tells Imam Ali, uh, show me the document. And Ali shows him the document and he erases the statement Rasulullah with his own blessed hand. And he says to Imam Ali, write, this is the treaty that Muhammad ibn Abdullah agrees to with Suhail ibn Amr. You know, but here Imam Ali is still hesitating. So he refuses to write anything less than Muhammad Rasulullah. So the Prophet tells him, write, indeed, he said, you will have a similar incident and you will give in. And you will be mazlum, you will be oppressed. This is a very interesting statement. It's a prophecy. Because what he's telling Imam Ali is that you're going to be in a similar situation in the future where you have to give in. And you're going to be mazlum, you'll be oppressed, you'll be the wronged party when that thing happens. What is he referring to exactly? He's referring to the muhakama during the time of fitan that emerged later on in Islamic history. So he mentions that without further commentary. And Imam Ali writes as instructed. And then the rest of the agreement is dictated. The Prophet ﷺ tells Imam Ali to write that they agree 
that they will, and I quote, that they will stop all war between their people for 10 years, during which time the people will be safe and will not harm one another on the condition that whoever comes to Muhammad from Quraysh without the permission of his guardian will be returned to them. And whoever comes to Quraysh from those with Muhammad will not be returned. This seems like a compromise, doesn't it? He's agreeing that anyone from their side who wishes to make hijrah cannot do so without the permission of whoever is over them in authority within their clan, their guardian. But if anyone from the Muslim side decides to leave Medina and go back to Mecca, then they're free to do so. It seems, it doesn't seem even-handed. It seems like a compromise. Now, this condition, as we'll see, only applied to the men. It didn't apply to the women. And we see that in Surah Al-Mumtahana, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims that if the Muslim women come to you making hijrah, then you have to test them, you know, test them to see the truthfulness of their claim. And he gives some different rulings about how that is to be done, but they're not to be returned. They're not to be returned to the disbelievers. So this term was very shocking for the Muslims. They didn't like it. But Suhail ibn Amr insisted on this term. And the companions, some of them said, Ya Rasulullah, shall we really write this? And he said, yes. Whoever leaves us to go to them, Allah has removed them from us. And whoever wishes to come to us from them, Allah will grant them an opening and ease. So, we're, And this is important because this is going to come up next week when we look at some incidents where people attempted to make hijrah but were stopped and some very interesting things happened uh, in that process. So Imam Ali wrote this term as well. And then he writes more terms. The next term says, And whoever wishes to enter into the contract and treaty of Muhammad may, and whoever wishes to enter into the contract and treaty of the Quraysh may, and that between the two parties there will be no bad intention, no theft, and no betrayal. So this term is telling, agreeing that uh, anyone after this is free to enter into a formal alliance with either side. So this is speaking to the different tribes, right? And this is what leads uh, Banu Khuza'a to enter a formal treaty, a formal alliance with the Prophet ﷺ with no political repercussions. And it allows other tribes to enter into a formal alliance with Quraysh with no repercussions from the Muslim side. So this was agreed to. Now Suhail adds more terms to the treaty. He says, and that you will turn back this year and will not enter Mecca, and that next year you will enter with your companions and remain for three days with nothing but a traveler's weapon, meaning a sword in its sheath, no more, 
and that you will not call anyone in Mecca to your religion. These are very stringent terms. Basically, you can come back next year for Umrah, you can only stay for three days, you can't bring weapons except for whatever you take on travel, and you can't do da'wah. You can only come three, three days, do the Umrah, and go back. That was it. One narration adds another condition to this treaty. The other condition is that whoever comes to Mecca on Hajj or Umrah or on business, his life and his property will be safe. And whoever goes to Medina from the Quraysh on his way to Egypt or to Sham to engage in trade, his life and property will also be safe. So these were agreed on and these were written down in the, in the treaty. Now, as it's being written, there's only one copy. And at this point, the Prophet ﷺ wants to have this copy. Suhail pushes back, and they agree to write two copies of this so that one is with each party. So each party now has their own copy of the treaty. And there was some back and forth about who should keep the original, but they agreed to write two copies of this treaty. So when these terms were dictated and written out in full. The treaty was finalized and there were several companions who were there to witness the signing of the treaty. In the Sira works they mention present was Sayyiduna Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu, Umar, Sayyiduna Uthman, Sayyiduna Ali who was the scribe obviously, as well as Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, Abu Ubaida and some others. So you have very senior Sahaba attending as witnesses to the treaty. On the Quraysh side, they had other witnesses besides Suhail ibn Amr. You had Mikraz ibn Hafs, Huwaytlib ibn Abdul Uzza, and maybe a couple of others. But these were the two main people along with Suhail. Because one narration says that it wasn't just Suhail who came by himself. He was with Mikraz ibn Hafs and Huwaytlib ibn Abdul Uzza. So after the treaty was finalized, Banu Khuza'a enters into that formal allegiance, that formal alliance with the Prophet As we said, the terms are that there are to be no repercussions for anyone doing so. And after the treaty was signed, you have Banu Bakr ibn Abdul Manat ibn Kinana entering into an alliance with Quraysh. So, it's after the treaty was finalized and signed that we come to the very famous narration about Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu. There's a very famous narration of Umar's feelings towards this treaty. He felt that this was a very major compromise. He didn't like the terms at all. And we read in Bukhari and Muslim this hadith where Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu says, I came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and said, Are you not truly the messenger of Allah? To which he said, Yes, I am. And then Umar asks another question. Are you not in the right while our enemy is in the wrong? And one narrative, Is it not that we are upon the truth? And thereupon falsehood. The Prophet says, Yes, of course. He says, Is it not true 
that are slain qatlana that they're in paradise wa qatlahum fil nar that their slain ones are in hell he says yes that is true he says why then do we offer concessions in matters of our deen why are we compromising and offering concessions in matters of our deen the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam replied to him he said I am indeed Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah. I would never disobey him, and he is the one who gives me support and victory. Umar radiallahu anhu, he still has feelings towards this treaty. And he says, didn't you tell us that we would come to the Kaaba and make the tawaf around it? Because that was the dream, wasn't it? He was fully expecting that Yes, this was the dream. We're going to go. We're going to make the tawaf. We're going to do the umrah exactly as the dream describes. And to this, the Prophet ﷺ says, Yes, I did. But did I tell you that we would do so this year? Because nowhere does he say that we're doing it this year. So this is interesting. The dream does not specify that they're going to do it that year. It just the dream shows that they're going to make the umrah, they're going to make the tawaf, and that they're going to shave their heads and others are going to cut their hair. It doesn't say this year. So he says this to Umar, and Umar says, no, you, you didn't say it was going to happen this year. So the Prophet ﷺ said, you will indeed come to the Kaaba and make tawaf around it. Just not this year. Just not this year. So this was a very... We wouldn't say it's a heated conversation. Sayyidina Umar is not speaking from a place of doubt. He's not speaking from a place of misgivings based on doubting the veracity and the truthfulness of Rasulullah He was simply disturbed because it appeared that this was a series of concessions where they're compromising where they don't need to compromise. This is his ghayra, you know, his, his positive jealousy for the sanctity of the deen. But he, so he felt impatient and wished that they didn't offer these concessions. So after the conversation with the Prophet ﷺ, he still felt some kind of way about this. And he goes to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And this shows you the importance of having good friends. He goes to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and asks him the exact same questions he asked the Prophet ﷺ, Is it not that we are upon truth and they are on falsehood? Is it not that our slain are in Jannah and their slain are in hellfire? If this is the case, why are we making concessions in deen? He asked the same questions. Abu Bakr anhu gives him a sharp response. And he says, Ya Ibn al-Khattab. You, know, you have to read between the lines here. Because... When you address someone by the name of their father, it's not the same as addressing them by their first formal name. You know, in, here in the West, we have middle names, right? The kid gets the first name, then there's a middle name, then the last name, right? And when do children hear their middle names pronounced? When the parent is mad. So it's kind of like that, you know, you know. Some, you know, Fulan, 
Fulan Al Fulani, you don't address with the middle name unless you're upset with your kid. So if you address them with just the name of the father, it's a way of pushing back with some rebuke. Ya Ibn al Khattab. He is indeed the Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he would never disobey his Lord's command, nor would his Lord ever allow him to go astray. So he pushes back on this. And it wasn't long after this incident that Allah Ta'ala revealed Surah Al-Fatih. And in Surah Al-Fatih, we find the verses that speak about this incident. And when Umar bin Khattab hears these verses that speak about Fathan Mubina, a clear victory, he says, Ya Rasulullah, does this mean that we will be granted victory? He says, yes, it does. And with this, Umar was satisfied. So there's a lesson here in submitting to the higher authority and not allowing your emotions to dictate what you do. So at this stage, what are they going to do now? They can't make their Umrah, but they're all in Ihram, aren't they? So if you go for Umrah, you're in Ihram, and you can't make their Umrah for some valid reason, what do you do? You can't just turn around and go back in Ihram. You have to have, to break the Ihram, there has to be a kind of atonement. And that atonement is by sacrificing your sacrificial animal. So at this stage, the Prophet ﷺ goes to the companions and says to them, Rise, slaughter your sacrificial animals, and shave your heads. This is the atonement for breaking the ihram, because they can't make their umrah this year. And he repeats this command three times. But the Muslims are still so shocked about the terms of the condition, of, of the treaty, that they're just, they're just quiet. It's like they're still thinking about what just happened. And no one moved to get up and sacrifice their animal or shave their head. He said it three times. The Prophet goes back to his quarters where he sits with his wife, Um Salama, and he mentions to her what is going on outside. You know, no one's, no one's listening. They hear my command, but they're just, they're just seated. They're not doing anything. So Um Salama, she says some very wise words. She says, Ya Rasulullah, don't blame them because they are suffering greatly because of what you have suffered of hardship in the matter of this treaty and their return to Medina without any victory. I would suggest, she said, I would suggest that you go back out and you say nothing to any of them, but instead simply go slaughter your sacrificial animal and then call your barber to shave your head and they'll follow suit. Because the leader leads from the front. The leader leads by example. So by, in her reasoning, if you do it first, this is going to motivate them to do it too. You have to be the first one. So he goes outside and he says nothing to anyone until he went and slaughtered his animal. He called for his barber, the halak, to shave his head. And then when the people saw him doing this, they all got up one by one and did it themselves. They all sacrificed their animals and shaved each other's heads. 
And this is, in a nutshell, the story of the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. Right? There's a, there are side stories that are related to it that occur afterwards, particularly with Abu Jandal, Abu Basir. We're going to come to that next week, inshallah. But this is the story. Now, when you go into the books of Sirah, whether it is whether they are the classical books of Sirah, like Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, or the latter works of Sirah that try to extract different ahkam, rulings, and hikam, uh, lessons, and wisdoms, you find a lot of rulings derived from this entire incident. And there's a lot of wisdoms derived from this entire incident in the dozens. And we simply don't have the time to go through all of them. About, about two-thirds of them are actually legal rulings we can derive from this story. So instead of going through all of them one by one, I just wanted to look at a few of the more salient lessons we can derive from the story of Al-Hudaybiyah. So we'll start with the first one that concerns Imam Ali radiallahu anhu. There is a very famous debate that has taken place historically among the ulama from very early on. And that is the debate over the question, which is to be given precedence? Adab, etiquette, or compliance? Ayyuhuma yuqaddam al-adab am al-imtithal? Right? If you have this dilemma, whether you, you have observance of adab, proper respect, or literal obedience to a command, which one do you give precedence to? If you see that this is against proper adab, do you still listen? Or do you observe the adab even if it means not listening to the command? And that debate manifests in a variety of ways in Islamic law. But we see this in the incident of Imam Ali radiallahu anhu. In the case of Imam Ali, he was told to erase Rasulullah from the document. And what did he say? He said, no, I will never erase Rasulullah. I will never erase you. Now on the surface, it seems like Imam Ali is flagrantly disobeying the command of Rasulullah But the reality is he's not disobeying him out of any kind of pride or insolence or stubbornness. It, it was out of esteem for maqam al-nubuwa or maqam al-risala. It was out of esteem and adab towards the Prophet that he could not bring himself to erase Rasulullah from the document. So he, he just didn't do it. So this does not mean that Imam Ali was Alsi disobeying the command in a negative way, right? There, there have been some people in Islamic history, they're called the Nawasib, and people who have uh, animosity and ill feelings towards the Ahlul Bayt and towards Imam Ali in particular. There are some of them who use this incident to say, ah, look, Imam Ali, you know, Ali. He's just disobeying the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He's just uh, ignoring his commands. 
you know, he's he he wasn't that great of a guy because if you're so if you're so great, why would you disobey like this? Right? That's the argument of some of these people. We call them Nawasib, who have animosity towards the Ahlul Bayt and Imam Ali in particular. But what they're doing is they're using this incident to diminish his status. But the reality is it exalts his status because it shows you the great adab and esteem he had for Rasulullah such that he could not bring himself to erase Rasulullah Now, going back to that principle or that debate, which is given precedence? Adab or literal compliance? Adab or imtithal? You actually see an example of this prior to the incident in the story of Uthman. In the story of Uthman, when he's sent to Mecca, he's going there in Ihram. He's there. He has the opportunity to make the tawaf and to do the umrah. They gave him the opportunity to do it. And if you have the opportunity to either break your Ihram or make your umrah, which one should you do? Make the umrah. There's nothing preventing you from making the umrah. So why would you not make the umrah and instead break the ihram and offer the sacrifice as an atonement? But he didn't make the umrah because he only wanted to make it when the Prophet ﷺ made it first. If he couldn't make it, he's not going to make it. So even in the story of Uthman, he is giving precedence to adab over imtithal, you know, literally fulfilling the condition of the ihram, you know, when you have the ability to do so. And if you go further into history, into the seerah, later on, you find another really strong example of this. <coughs> In the story of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, radiallahu anhu, towards the latter days before the passing of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he was feeling sick. And he was in his house. And who was appointed to lead the people in Salat? Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is leading the Salat. He's about to start the Salat. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam pulls the curtain back. He comes out. And upon seeing him, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he pulls back from the position of the Imam. But Rasulullah signals to him to go forward and lead the people in prayer. But he doesn't do it. He stays back. He, we could use the word refuse, but he held back. And afterwards, the Prophet asked him, Ya Aba Bakr, ma mana'aka an tathbuta idh amartuk? What prevented you? from being firm and remaining there as Imam when I commanded you. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said to him, مَا كَانَ فِي إِبْنِ أَبِي قُحَافَ أَنْ يُصَلِّيَ بَيْنَ يَدَيْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ It is not fitting that Ibn Abi Quhafa himself should lead the prayer in the presence of the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم. So this is another example of them giving precedence to adab over the literal compliance with an instruction. When the two seem to conflict, they will give precedence to adab over the literal compliance. So we say that Imam Ali's refusal 
was not out of disobedience of an explicit command. It was because he felt that this was uh, inappropriate to the station of Risala and to the maqam of the Prophet And Rasulullah understood the position he's in. That's why he erased it with his own blessed hand. And this was the position of the ulama about the stance of Imam Ali. When they comment on this hadith, they mention this fact. For, for example, Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he says in Fath al-Bari, his commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari, وَكَأَنَّ عَلِيًّا فَهِمَ أَنَّ أَمْرَهُ لَهُ بِذَارِكَ لَيْسَ مُتَحَتِّمًا فَلِذَارِكَ أَمْتَنَعَ مِنْ امْتِثَالِ And it's as if he understood that it's not such an emphatic command where there's no other option. So he gives precedence to Adab in this case. And so he, that was his understanding. And that was Imam Ali's position. He says, Wallahi la amhuka abadan. I will never erase you. And there's others, indeed, in our tradition who give precedence to imtithal, to compliance over adab. But even in that case, even among those scholars, none of them say, oh, Imam Ali was disobedient and he was wrong for doing this. No one says he was wrong. They understood his position. That's the first point we can derive from the story. That is particular to Imam Ali and to the issue of adab versus compliance. Another lesson we derive from the story of Al-Hudaybiyah is how this treaty opened the doors for da'wah. We remember how in the beginning of Surah Al-Fatih, Allah says, Inna fatahna laka fathan mubina. We have given you a manifest victory. That victory is not Fathu Mecca. That victory is the Fath achieved because of the Treaty of Al Hudaybiyah. There's a great Turkish scholar, maybe some of you have heard of him, uh, Sheikh Saeed Nursi. He's a great scholar of the, the late Ottoman period, even during the Ataturk era as well. He was a great scholar. He was imprisoned, he was exiled. <clears throat> he wrote extensively about the Qur'an and about Iman. It was a great alim. And he wrote about the incident of Al-Hudaybiyah and said, during conflicts and wars, most people cannot judge rationally what is right and wrong or what is true and false. In a state of war, people are very tense. Emotions are high. There's fear, there's anger. There's back and forth between two sides. So in those situations, it's very hard, he says, for people to think rationally and to contemplate what is true from what is false, what is right from what is wrong. So, but now you have this treaty, which creates a 10-year peaceful environment, according to the terms. It creates a peaceful environment for da'wah. And we see that after Al-Hudaybiyah, Islam spreads faster after the treaty than it ever did before. And more and more people, particularly those of higher ranks among Quraysh, begin to hear the message and begin to embrace Islam, such as Khalid bin Walid, Amr bin As, and others. They're now becoming Muslim as a result of this peaceful environment created by the treaty. So by having this environment of peace through the the cessation of hard power, hard power as in military force, 
now you have the ability for Islam to spread through the soft power of the Muslims, which is the akhlaq, which is reciting the Qur'an, teaching the people, spending time with them in a peaceful environment where because there's no hostilities, they can actually listen to what's being said and consider it. So this was one of the great benefits of the treaty. Uh, Sa'id Norsi continues saying, with the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, Muslims no longer had to resist the attacks of the Meccans with the sword. Instead, the brilliant truths of the Qur'an found a peaceful atmosphere in which to spread, and it conquered minds and hearts. In this truce, he said, the two sides came to know one another better, and the virtues of Islam and the light of the Qur'an rent apart the veils of inad, of, of obstinance, and asabiyya, tribal fanaticism, and this proved to be very effective in the spread of Islam. So this is one of the greatest lessons of Al-Hudaybiyah, that Islam spreads in an environment of peace where people can actually consider the message. Now you go into the latter works of Sirah, we can consider as one book of Sirah, the book Zad al-Ma'ad of Ibn Qayyim. It's a very famous work. It's Sirah and everything else, but it is a book of Sirah. In Zad al-Ma'ad, Ibn Qayyim reflects on the lessons of Al-Hudaybiyah as well. And he says that Al-Hudaybiyah was the miftah. It was the key for the Fathul Mecca, for the conquest of Mecca. If Mecca is a city and there needs to be a conquest, a final victory of truth over falsehood, the key to that city, i.e. to that conquest, would be this treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. But when you go back into the time when the treaty took place, no one could perceive the link between the treaty itself and actual victory, ultimate victory of truth over falsehood in the conquest of Mecca. And that's why people were upset of, of the terms and they didn't like these concessions, what they felt were compromises. They did not see the big picture that even though this appears as a series of compromises and concessions, is actually the key for ultimate victory and the spread of Islam. Because now with the treaty, both groups can interact. Da'wah can be given freely, without hostilities, without fighting. Now, and for the first time, the Qur'an can be recited freely without fear of violence. And now you go back to the early works of Sirah, you go back to Ibn Hisham, which is a recension of Ibn Ishaq's Sirah prior to him. Ibn Hisham brings a very interesting narration from Imam Zuhri, one of the Imams of Maghazi. Imam Zuhri, who is an authority in this field, he speaks about the treaty of Hudaybiyah. Ibn Hisham quotes him. He said, never before had there been a victory for Islam like this one. He says, for now, the battles took place where people met to converse. So the only battles are battles of dialogue, battles of da'wah, battles of speaking truth, conveying the message of Islam, of la ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. He says, when the truce was concluded, war came to an end, and people guaranteed one another's safety 
meeting together to exchange ideas through conversation and debate. Islam was explained, he said, to no sensibly-minded person except that he entered its fold. And anybody who had a sensible mind, if they heard it now, they would enter Islam. And that's why people entered Islam in droves after the treaty. He goes on to say, and during those two years, because we know it wasn't 10 years, the terms were 10 years, but we know what happens. During those two years, the number of people who became Muslims equaled and perhaps exceeded the number who had done so before. So you have how many years? How many years was the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca? 13. How many years up to now was he in Medina? 6. How many years is that? I think 19, 20 years. He's saying that in this two-year period, either the same number of people became Muslim or even more than the prior 20 years. That's the result of this Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah because it gave an open space for da'wah without fear of violence, without fear of bloodshed, and anything of the sort. Now, Umar radiallahu anhu eventually sees this wisdom as well. And we have a narration where he says, I kept making salat and giving sadaqah and freeing slaves in hope of making some sort of kafara, expiation for what I said on that day. And he came to regret his emotions getting the best of him on that day because he saw the wisdom as it unfolded later. People who have a higher perspective would see the wisdom very clearly as it can unfold years in the future that others may not see. So you submit to the people of hikmah who see what you don't necessarily see. So that's the second lesson. A third lesson we can derive from the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah is how it actually served to minimize bloodshed on the day of the conquest of Mecca. Because the conquest of Mecca, we call it a fath. A fath means an opening, but it also means a conquest. But we know from the seerah that Fath Mecca was a relatively bloodless conquest. That is in no large part due to the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, which served to minimize casualties when the conquest of Mecca actually took place. So because of that peaceful environment where da'wah could be given openly, the message was conveyed without any hindrance. So when Fath Mecca actually occurred, it came after a long period of da'wah and not conflict. So this made the conquest a relatively bloodless one. And you have to wonder what might have happened if there was no treaty. What would that war have looked like? What would that conquest have looked like if there was no treaty ever? And it was just Badr, followed by Uhud, followed by Khandaq, in between different skirmishes it would have probably been a lot bloodier than it was. It was a relatively bloodless conquest, and the people who uh, faced consequences were people who had engaged in serious crimes, right? but the average person didn't suffer anything. So this brings us to the conclusion of the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, sort of, because there's still stories connected to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, things that happened after the treaty was signed, 
such as the story of Abu Jandal and the story of Abu Basir. And inshallah, next week we're going to look at their stories. We'll look at the post Hudaybiyah environment in general up until the lead up to Khaybar, the Battle of Khaybar. Now, the Battle of Khaybar, of course, is a battle. How do we reconcile that with the treaty? Very easily. The treaty was between the Prophet and Quraysh. It wasn't between him and the people of Khaybar. So that doesn't apply to them. So we have that story coming up uh, beginning next week, inshallah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'ala wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Yeah, I, I've I've come across some of those narrations, but when in the in the authoritative Sira works of, of Ibn Wisham, Ibn Ishaq, and the the latter recensions, we don't really find that narration given as much strength as the ones that show him negotiating, being given the opportunity to make the tawaf and visit the Muslims that were hiding their Islam there in Mecca. Um, we get the impression also because the Sira is. You, you do have to fill in the blanks a little bit in a lot of these stories because we don't have super strict timelines and there are certain gaps. So we do get the impression that he's trying on multiple occasions and that he's held up in negotiations. That may have been perceived as him being held captive, but they, they let him go. Not that he was captive, but that he was, you know, he was before a captive audience, I guess, or he was the captive audience to them, but not as a literal prisoner. Yeah. Right. Well, they they realized this rumor had spread, and that obviously they didn't do that, and then they don't want to face them marching on them and all this conflict unfolding. So they had him go back. Yeah. Oh yeah.